you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, chapter 21, and we will be picking up in verse 15 today. As I said, we're taking it just, um, we're slowing down just a little bit at this point. We'll probably speed back up here shortly. Um, Paul's uh, winding up his third missionary journey today that comes to an end. And uh, he's been making his way to Jerusalem, and he's been told all along the way that it's going to go bad for him when he gets there, that chains await him, that he will be persecuted, there will be tribulation, he will be arrested. But he was dead set on going. He knew that was God's will for him, and nothing was going to stop him. Not uh, not threats, not danger, and not even the desperate pleas of those closest to him. And that's what we talked about last week. And so we talked about being steadied by conviction. Knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being compelled by that. Those things that we know that we know are the truth. And those things that are so very important to us that God has revealed to us and that God has called us to. And, and that was Paul. He was a man of great conviction. And he was led, he was compelled by his convictions. And today, we're going to be talking about a diversity of convictions because we all have convictions there are certain things that we all hold very near and dear to our hearts and there are some convictions that you must have as a Christian if you say you're a Christian you must believe that Jesus Christ is the way the the only way according to the Bible according to his own words and that he is who he says he is he's the son of God and that he came to seek and to save the lost to die for the sins of the world he rose again from the grave on the third day He ascended on high. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has sent His Holy Spirit uh, to to indwell believers and to lead and to guide. I mean, all those things are fundamentals of the faith. Those are convictions that we must adhere to. But then there are also other convictions that are secondary that we can differ over. And so we're going to kind of see that come up in the text today. So last week we talked about being steadied or even compelled by our convictions, but today we're going to talk about a diversity of convictions. There is uh, one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ is there is unity and diversity. And so um, with that, let me pray for us. We'll read our text and then we'll get into it. Father, we love you. So grateful for your word. So grateful that indeed you have revealed yourself to us through creation And creation does testify that there indeed is a Creator who is almighty and powerful. But through Your Word, God, You have gone even further in Your revelation of Yourself. And by Your Son, You have gone even further in revealing who You are and revealing Your heart to us. And so I thank You, God, and I pray that today You would speak to us by Your Word. You have said that heaven and earth would pass away, but your word would not, and that you would exalt your word even above your own name. And God, there are many needs here today. There are people who are struggling. There are people who are doubting. There are people who are hurting. God, there are people who are seeking. There are people who are far away from you. And I pray that by your word, God, you would meet every need in here pray that you would speak a special word to the people in here who need it the most. And I thank you, God, and we, we believe by faith that you are here and that you will meet us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, 
before we read the text, what's happening here is that Paul has gone to Jerusalem and he's going to meet with the council again, James and the elders. And they're going to inform Paul that he's, got a, he's developed a little bit of a bad reputation. And James is going to come up with a plan for Paul so that the, the Christian Jews there in Jerusalem will know that all these things that they've been told about Paul are not true. And we're going to talk about the, the distinction that James makes between the Jewish Christians and the, the non-Jewish Christians, the Gentiles. They, they have very different convictions in some respects, and that's okay. Some of the, the Christian Jews love the law. They love Moses. And they're free to observe that. They're free to continue on in those things that had been handed down to them. They understand that those things don't, don't save them, but they're still free to, to observe those things. And the Gentiles, they're free not to. They, they didn't grow up in the customs of Moses. It, it's not near and dear to their hearts. And they're free in Christ not to observe those things. And both are okay. And so that's what we're going to really see come out in this text today. So as we read through this, you know, the early church, just a side note, the early church was big on just the public reading of the Scriptures. And that's one of the reasons why we do this when we can. We just read through the text and read it in its context all the way through without stopping all over the place. And then we go back and unpack it. So even as we read through this text here, I want you to just open your heart and your mind to the Lord and, and really soak it in, okay? So verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul, uh, the, excuse me, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, so that all may know that those things of which they are informed concerning you are nothing." but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification at which time an offering should be made for each of them. All right. The book of Acts, I've mentioned several times over, it covers the first 30 years of church history. 
And so Luke is very selective in the things that, that he draws out to communicate to us. There were so many things that, that he could have talked about. So these are all very significant events that took place. And sometimes we may forget that. We may gloss right over that. But what we have seen is how the church was born. Where did the church come from? We saw that in Acts chapter 2. We've seen the Holy Spirit come and the Holy Spirit has been given to the church. The New Testament church was born. But then we saw that the church was not only for the Jews, but it went to the Gentiles. That was huge. That was massive. And then we saw that the Gentiles were not required to become Jews first. That was the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. That was a, that was a very pivotal, pivotal... I had that problem last time. Pivotal moment. And... You know, they said you don't have to observe the laws of Moses. You don't have to become a Jewish proselyte. You don't have to become a practicing Jew before you come to Christianity. Gentiles, non-Jews can go straight to Christ from where they are at. And that was huge. That was a, a big moment. But today what we're kind of seeing is that Jews don't have to become Gentiles either. Jews who grew up in the, their traditions, their customs, the things that made them very distinct as a nation, they're free to observe those things. They love the law. And we'll talk more about that. And so there is a diversity of convictions here. There are certain things that they all have to agree upon, Jew or Gentile, but then there are certain things that they can differ on. The Gentiles are free and the Jews are free to observe those things. So, verse 15 and after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Now, Paul made good on his commitment to go to Jerusalem. As I mentioned already, he knew what was awaiting him. People tried to stop him, but try as they may, it didn't work. And so Paul went on to Jerusalem. Now, next week we're going to see Paul is going to be arrested, and he's going to go back to Caesarea, and he's going to be in prison there for a couple of years. So verse 16, we're told that also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So, they bring with them an early disciple. This is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, back when the church was born, really, in Acts chapter 2, there were about 120 Christians there that were gathered together. And then the Holy Spirit fell and came in like a rushing mighty wind and the next thing you know Peter preaches this amazing message and 3,000 people come to Christ that day and so it's possible that this guy goes all the way back to that little group 25 years earlier verse 17 and when we had come to Jerusalem the brethren received us gladly so this is the point when Paul actually brings the gift to the Jerusalem church that he's been collecting. We've talked about this before in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and 9. It's one of the best texts on Christian giving. And Paul is exhorting the church there on how they ought to go about giving for the purpose of receiving this offering that he's actually delivering to the church in Jerusalem at this point. And in Romans, he also references this. So he says in uh, Romans 15, 25, I'll just read this to you. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia, that would be Corinth, to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So Paul has, has come now to Jerusalem and he's been taking up this offering from all the other Christians to, to give to the church in Jerusalem. So the brethren, they received him gladly. He's here and 
He's there to meet a great need, and they received him, and it's just a beautiful thing to see how the church takes care of its own. All around the body of Christ and all of these different regions and places that Paul went, they all chipped in to help the Christians there in Jerusalem, the mother church as it were. Well, verse 18, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Some of you may recognize that. He is the author of the book of James. His uh, nickname that was given to him was James the Just. And uh, at this point, he is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. And tradition has it that he was killed by some of the uh, religious uh, leaders of that day. Some have said that he was thrown off of the Temple Mount and some say that he was stoned. Not exactly sure, but that, that's who we're dealing with at this point. And he also has the elders with him. So these are the pastors of the, the church in Jerusalem. And they've come together to meet with Paul. So verse 19, When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now as I mentioned before, Paul's already been here. Acts chapter 15, there was a dispute that rose up in the church and there were the Judaizers. And these were the guys who said, you have to keep the law. It's not a matter of just enjoying the traditions and the rituals that have been handed down. They said, you have to follow the law of Moses and Christ in order to be saved. So it was Christ plus. And so that's been going on from the very beginning of the church. And... Paul sought to stamp that out. So they met in Jerusalem. That was the Jerusalem Council. And they determined that we are saved by grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and that alone. And it is not Jesus plus the law. So that's already been determined. That's already been established. And it's important that we we recognize that. And the meeting that I'm referring to now that's what James is talking about when he says that you know we've, we've given them no such commandment except that they abstain from sexual immorality and things with blood and strangled. And I'll talk about that again in a, in a few minutes. But Paul is now reporting to them. All this time has passed and he's back. He's back in the presence of the council and he's reporting to them how God has been moving so mightily amongst the Gentiles. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So they were rejoicing that the Gentiles were saved, that God was doing such an awesome work apart from the law. But now they're saying, Look at all the Jews who are believers in Christ, and they are zealous for the law. The word myriads there, that, that means... an um, an innumerable amount, a countless number of people. And so he said, look at all of these Jews who have put their trust in Christ, but they're still zealous for the law. So God is working in the Gentiles apart from the law, and that's fantastic. But God is working in the Jews, and they still love the law. And that's fantastic. Again, this is not to say that they were keeping the law to be saved, because we've already made that very clear. Acts chapter 15, 11, Peter said, we are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus. I can't emphasize that enough. So verse 21, But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, 
saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Okay, so this is the reputation that Paul has. Remember, we're in Jerusalem. This is like the hub, okay? So this is, this is all Jews here who have, have put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And the law runs deep in this place. This is where the temple is. This is where all the priestly duties are happening. And Paul has a reputation of being anti-Jew, anti-Moses, which is not true. But there is some truth in this because Paul has made it very clear that the law does not save. You cannot be saved by the law. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And he has made it very clear that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to observe those customs handed down to the Jews to be saved. So there is some truth in this, but not exactly, not entirely. And we see Paul. He still observes some of the Jewish feasts and some of the vows. He's already taken one vow. He's going to take another one here in a minute at James' request. So verse 22. They say, What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So basically what he's saying is, we're here in the presence of the assembly. We have to do something about this. We have to be proactive because these people that are saying this about you will certainly know that you're here and this is going to be a problem. So what are we going to do? We have to be proactive to get out ahead of this thing before it erupts. And Paul knows all about that. Everywhere he goes, things uh, erupt. So this is James's, um, This is his solution to the problem. Verse 23. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow... Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So this is James' solution. He says, Paul, people are saying this about you. They think you're anti-Moses, anti-Jew. So I want you to enter into this vow with these other young men and pay their expenses so that people will see this and recognize all these things that are being said about you are not true. So what is this vow? What is this vow? We've already seen Paul do this once before. So one commentator, he says this. This is the Nazarite vow. It's a special pledge of separation and devotion to God. So it's an act of worship. The vow usually lasted for a specific period of time, although Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist were Nazarites for life. In Paul's day, if someone made the vow while away from Jerusalem, at the termination of his vow, he would shave his head as Paul does and afterwards present the shorn hair at the temple within 30 days. So that's what's happening. We've got these four guys that have made this vow, this, this separation, this consecration of themselves to God. And at the end of this vow, they have to shave their heads. And so James says, Paul, why don't you take the vow with them, pay for them to be able to get their their hair cut, and then people will see you do this and they'll know that all these things are not true. So, my first question is, is James asking Paul to lie? Because there are a lot of commentators who would say that this is not right. This is not cool. It's not cool that James is asking him to do this. It's not cool that Paul's going to do it. So is he asking him to lie? No, he's not. He's not asking Paul to be or do anything other than what he has already said or made very clear. 
as I said, there's a real distinction happening here between what Paul has preached and what Paul is doing. James is not setting a double standard here either. It's important that we, we recognize that. He's not saying that you as a Jew have to do this, but the Gentiles don't. Look, if James really thought that Paul had to do this in order to be saved, then he's damning the Gentiles when he says the Gentiles don't have to do this. You understand? It would be like him saying, Paul, we know you have to follow the law, but just forget about the Gentiles. We don't, they don't have to do that. So that's not what's happening here. So verse 25, But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So this was, this was what was handed down in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 for the Gentiles. They said they don't have to observe the customs of Moses. We just ask that they do this. And these are things that were directly linked to pagan worship, idolatry. And so they said, look, this is, a lot of these people are coming out of uh, worshiping a, a multiplicity of gods and pagan worship. That was very detestable to the Jews. And so they just asked that the Gentiles be very careful, very cautious not to get caught up in those kinds of things, not to engage in that. And so that's all that that's really speaking of. So I just want to talk a minute about the law. What is the law? Because I've got to be honest with you, I feel like most of the time when I talk about the law, I speak of it really in one dimension. And that is the law is there to show us that we can't measure up. And that is true. God has given His law so that we can realize that we're not law keepers, we're law breakers. And so that we would fall on God's mercy and recognize that we need His grace because we cannot do it. And that is very much a part of what the law is. But you know what, guys? The law is good. Romans seven twelve, Paul says... The law is holy, the commandment holy, it is just, it is good. The law reveals a lot to us about God, who He is, His nature. I would tell you, it's important that you guys know your Old Testament. That was one of the, the ways for so long that God revealed who He is, His, his person, his, his nature, His essence, those things that please Him, those things that He hates. And there are people in the day and age that we live in, even in the church, who would tell us we don't need the Old Testament. That's kind of something that's, that's starting to gain some traction. Be careful about that, because everything that we believe as Christians really is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It was born out of that. There's so much that we understand about God, about Jesus, about the New Testament. We're so informed because of the Old Testament. So the law was wonderful. God revealed Himself. He revealed His heart, His righteous requirements. And the law was designed to produce. It was designed to produce orderly government. You know, the, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years and they were under harsh bondage. And so now they were rescued out under Moses and now they were going to become a nation and they needed to know how they ought to live. So God gave them the law so that there could be orderly government amongst Israel, so that there could be health and sanitation. There's a lot in there about that, as I mentioned that last week. Everything from how they live, cleanliness, to how they eat, 
healthy diet. Social justice. You know, God really does care about those who are oppressed, those who are afflicted, the those who are down and out, as it were. You know, there are laws for the orphans and the widows, people who would harvest their crops. You know, it was a very it was a very agrarian culture, a lot of agriculture going on, and so the people who would harvest their crops, anything that fell on the ground, they couldn't pick it up. And in a field, they would have to go in a big circle as they would reap the harvest, and they left the corners so that the, the homeless, the orphans, the widows, they could come in there and they could get that and they would have food. God put that there. God put that there. How to treat people's animals. There's a law that says that if you find your enemy's animal down in a ditch, you've got to get it out. You still have to have mercy on this animal even though it's your enemies. So we see God's heart in a lot of ways. We see justice in the law. Morality. God sets forth uh, a code of morality and we obviously know that through the Ten Commandments and there are so many other commandments. And there are also uh, ceremonies, festivals, so many different things that are given in the law. And so the law was good, and the Jews loved the law. That was their heritage. It was, it was what made them unique. It was what made them distinct. It was their identity in so many ways. So the point here is that the Jewish Christians are free to enjoy their ethnic and national traditions. And the Gentiles are free not to. So there's been a lot of information at this point. I realize this has been really dry, kind of chipping away verse by verse. And so I just want to, I should have told you all that ahead of time. I apologize. I am getting to to a point here. And I'm going to get really practical with you guys kind of at this point moving forward. And so, we all have freedoms, and we all are called to serve the Lord and to follow our convictions. And so, I want to read to you Romans. In fact, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 5 is where we're going to pick up. This is one of the glorious things about being a a Christian, a follower of Christ. I've talked about this before. It's an adventure. Seeking the Lord, getting to know God more and more, learning His Word, understanding the things that are important to God and they become important to us. And we oftentimes will differ on these kinds of things. And so Romans chapter 14, verse 5, it says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he who gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, you can turn back to Acts now. So, the point Paul is making here is that we all have to stand before the Lord. That last little verse there. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Guess what? When we are standing before the Lord, there's no one else going to be standing there. It's just me. I have to answer to the Lord for how I lived my life here, how I served Him, how I used the resources that He gave me, how I used the giftings that He gave me, how I used the time that He gave me here on earth. And I have to answer to the Lord, and so do you. It's not my place to judge you guys. It's not my place necessarily to, to correct you or tell you what you ought to do or ought not to do according to my own preferences and my own opinions. Because ultimately, you serve the Lord like I serve the Lord and you have to answer to Him just like I have to answer to Him. You tracking with me? And so, this is something that we get caught up in quite a bit within Christianity. Sometimes we want to put our convictions and our preferences on other people when we really should not. You know, I came from a, I came from a, a town in South Carolina that uh, was really um, fundamentalism. You, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear that. That was born kind of in the beginning of the, the 1900s because liberalism came first. And people began to say, you know, we don't really have to believe that the Bible, the miracles, all those things are true. We can just kind of, it's a good book of moral code, but we don't, you don't actually believe in the resurrection. You don't actually believe that God created everything and that it happened in seven days. You don't have to believe all of that. So faithful men and women rose up and said, we're going to stand against that. And they held to the core tenets of the gospel and of the scriptures, and they were called fundamentalists. Well, that was a great thing, but over time, you know, as so often happens, it began to deviate and it became all about outward rules and regulations and dress code and so on and so forth. So as I was growing up in South Carolina, this might sound crazy to you guys, but it wasn't until about 10 years ago that they could even have, do, uh, have tattoos there, you know, like tattoo parlors, lottery tickets, alcohol sales on Sunday. They called it the blue laws. There were all of these kind of regulations set in place because of religion. And um, a lot of Christianity there was marked as men can't wear shorts, women can't wear pants, have to always wear dresses. Guys' hair has to be at least an inch above their ears. You can't go to restaurants that have bars in them, so you can't go to Applebee's because we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't cuss, amen? And that's like Christianity. And... And some of those things, obviously, there's good wisdom in, in some of those things. Um, but you can't, first off, that's not Christianity, okay? That's not good news. The good news is that if we put our trust in Christ and what He has done, His works, we shall be saved. If we believe on Him, that's the good news. It would be bad news if it was up to us to have our hair a certain way and our dress a certain way and the kind of music we listen to a certain way. It's an infinite number of rules and regulations. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that you can't keep the rules. You will never be able to keep the rules. There aren't enough rules to keep 
to be on par with God's righteous standard and holiness. Can't do it. But I came up in, in, um, in a culture, in a town that was very much that way. And even my, you know, my church in Tennessee, I kind of went from South Carolina to Tennessee, and it was even worse in this little town in Tennessee. And, you know, my pastor was a guy that had uh, come out of a very rough background, and, you know, he had done some time in prison. And I remember hearing one of the local pastors in, in that town said, that guy can't be a pastor, he was a convict. You know? And I, I tell people, you know, They'll say, what seminary did you go to? I said, well, my church, the more prison time you've done, the more qualified you are. So, you know, that's, uh, that's how we roll. Anyways, I could keep going. I won't. So I just want to talk a little bit about convictions and um, the diversity of convictions. I'm going to talk about some that are kind of silly, trivial, personal and some that are really hot topics that people get really upset about. So if I put my finger on something, I don't mean to be offensive, and I'm not, I'm not saying one side is right over the other. I'm just going to put this out here so we can kind of get a feel for, kind of see how we do this. We fall on one side or the other of, of things in culture that really are just convictions. And we need to be okay with other people having other convictions than our own for the sake of unity in the body of Christ, for the beauty of unity and diversity in the body of Christ. I'll tell you just an example. You know, this was kind of funny. Jess and I, my wife and I, we both went through U-Turn for Christ in Tennessee. And uh, after she got out of the program, she started attending a, a ladies' Bible study at the church. And the lady that was running it, she kind of opened up the thing by talking about her, the sin in her life. The struggle, it was real. It ran deep. And it was that she she knitted too much. You know, like crochet, crocheting, knitting. And Jess was like, what in the world is going on here? You know, I just got out of this, this program and, and it's like real deep uh, life-crushing issues. And now I'm in the church and we're talking about knitting. And it's like, I'm, this is craziness. But that's just the reality is, is that all our struggles are different. And that struggle is just as real for her as anybody else. You know, the next person is not going to look at knitting and think, you sinner, you. No, they're just not going to do that, right? But you have to give her the freedom to, you know, if her conscience is bothered by that, then for her it's, it's sin. You know, for me, I struggled with martial arts. Um, I started getting into that years ago and just something to kind of try to get healthy, and I really enjoyed it. And then I found myself getting very passionate about it. It was really the master passion of my life. Everything was about martial arts and MMA and all of that kind of stuff. And I started to notice the change. You know, all of a sudden I'm, my, I'm dressing differently. I'm wanting to wear like the MMA stuff and getting tattoos real impulsively. And um, even my attitude was starting to change. It was kind of like, I wish somebody would look at me sideways. I would put the fear of God in them. And it was like, whoa, this is um, changing me. You know, my identity is not a follower of Christ. It's a, a martial artist. And I started to think, I wonder, is God telling me I should quit? You know, and I didn't really know. But then one day it occurred to me, if he was, I wasn't willing to. And then I knew, okay, this is idolatry. This has become the master passion in my life. This is the thing I've been worshiping at the altar of martial arts. And I, I quit. You know, that became a very deep conviction for me. 
um, church dress code. Obviously, there's a lot of different ways in which churches go about this. But, you know, my, my grandpa in South Carolina, he was obviously old school, and he said that you ought to wear the very best that you have to wear when you go to church, you know. And uh, for him, it was a suit and tie, the whole nine. He said, because when you go into the church of God, you ought to wear, when you go into the house of God, as we said, you should be wearing your best. I said, yeah, I understand that, Papa, but uh, this is the house of God, right? It's not this building. And so I want my heart to be right before the Lord more than my outward appearance. Amen? And for me, I think kind of being comfortable is important. We want to be free. We want to be comfortable, right? It's good. I've found that when I'm comfortable... In fact, sometimes I worship better sitting down than I do standing up, you know, and so it's just different for people. And um, obviously modesty is the issue, modesty. We don't want to be a stumbling block to other people or a distraction, but uh, I don't know that God is necessarily impressed with a three-piece suit. I'm just not so sure about that. So anyways, now I'll kind of pick up the speed a little bit. So churches... You know, churches differ, obviously, on styles. You have modern churches, traditional churches, music. Again, where I'm from, that was a huge issue. If uh, if your music had drums in it or guitars, it was of the devil. It was worldly. And, you know, I talked to a worship leader. This guy had a Ph.D. in music, and he was in one of these churches. And so I'm just trying to understand. I'm, I'm open. Help me understand why this is so bad. And he said, well, the Bible talks about um, not being of the world. And so, what kind of music's of the world? Come on. And I'm like, uh, that's not very convincing, you know. And that was the best he could come up with. And so, there's just so many different opinions about music and um, Bible translation, so on and so forth. You have people that would go so far as to say, if you don't read the, the King James Version, you're not even saved. You know, if you got saved by reading any other Bible. And people get really crazy on those kinds of things, you know. Tobacco. That's, you know, out here people don't smoke for the most part, I've noticed. Where I'm from, I mean, everyone smokes and dips and chews. And it's just a, a, the way that it is in that culture. And I was talking to a lady about that, you know. And uh, because out there drinking is a cardinal sin. If they find out you you've, have had a glass of wine or something, oh man, you're excommunicated. You're out. And so it's funny how different it is from coast to coast, but I had one lady tell me when she grew up in the church, the pastor would be up preaching with a cigarette. Now, that is crazy, right? Now, obviously, it's not like that so much anymore that I've seen. I've seen some crazy stuff, but never that. Um, but, you know, Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. You know, it's so funny, Jonathan Edwards, he's a legend, and he was real strict about his eating, because he wanted to be able to optimize his performance and how much he could preach and function as a minister. Charles Spurgeon was like the antithesis of that. He was 300 pounds of smoked cigars. And so they're like, you know, what's up with the, the smoking, you know? And he said, well, I think that uh, it's not a problem until it's uh, done in excess. And they said, well, what's excessive? He said, two cigars at once. <laughs> and so I love that. Love that guy. And... Um, it's been said that some years later there was a billboard up that said uh, these are the kinds of cigars that Charles Spurgeon smokes. They used him to promote that and he quit smoking because of that, because he was being used to promote something other than the gospel. 
And so that was a conviction. He became convicted at that point. He said, I can't do this anymore. He felt the freedom to smoke, but if it was going to stumble people or his name would be associated with something like that other than the gospel, he wasn't cool with that, you know? Probably he had started smoking two cigars at once, and that was a more noble reason for quitting. Um, but, you know, alcohol, as I had already mentioned out here, uh, the Bible's not against drinking, uh, having a drink, having a glass of wine. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't teach abstinence entirely from alcohol. But as I said, culturally, uh, where I'm from, that is a big no-no. And pastors will say what I just said. They'll say, hey, the Bible doesn't say that you can't drink, but I will say it. And they will say, you can't drink. And... Uh, coming out here, I had to readjust to that a little bit because it's everywhere. It's in your face. I see it on social media. I don't have social media, but I've had people point it out to me regularly how much people flaunt this stuff, Christians, on social media. And I was like, wow, man, I'm not in Kansas anymore. You know, it's different. And so I had to really grapple with, with that one and just understand how much of what I'm feeling is cultural, how much of it is that's taboo and 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 southern society as opposed to being out here how people vote that's a hot hot one you know um and people are on on different sides of that coin and that's okay they have to answer to the lord and they have to determine what is the right thing to do before god and they will vote accordingly as christians and to give people the freedom to make that choice and to hear from god and to do what they think is right. You know, homeschooling versus public schooling or private schooling. Uh, there's an army of homeschoolers that will just, you know, beat you down if you want to do public schooling. I mean, I've heard of churches where they get, if they think that the pastor is in any way endorsing public schools, they'll leave the church. I've, you know, I've been in churches where that happened. And so there has to be grace on both sides. Some people do private schooling, some do homeschooling, some do public. And the parents have to hear from the Lord and determine what they think is the best thing for their kids. Disciplining children, you know, do you spank or not? I mean, the Scriptures do speak to that, but again, the parent has to hear from the Lord. How do you discipline your children? Another one is vaccinations, right? Right now, with this whole measles thing going on, but people get upset about that. I mean, they are extremely opinionated and passionate on both sides of the coin and that's a hot topic even in the church again it's a parenting issue but I've seen both sides and I've seen even some a little bit of hostility there you know mental health is it okay for people to take antidepressants or not um, again that's a big one that's a really big one and you see that um, and people take very different sides but again, this would be an example where you got to hear from the Lord and you have to determine scripturally what is the best thing for you or for your family. And oh, we have to give people grace and, and doing what they think is the right thing to do before the Lord. So those are just some examples of how we can have convictions. We're all Christians. We all love the Lord. We're not compromising on who He is and what the Bible says about Him and our responsibility to follow Him and obey Him. But there are very different things going on in the culture and we have to decide what is right for us before the Lord and we have to stand before the Lord for our own decisions, right? As I had read that verse to you earlier. So let's go ahead and wrap it up. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day having been purified with them, he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification at which time an offering should be made 
for each one of them. I had read that quote to you earlier, kind of explaining the, the nuances of that. So the question is, Paul compromising? You know, he signed on to this little deal that, that James concocted. And the obvious answer is no, Paul's not compromising. He loved the law. He loved those cultures and traditions that had been handed down. And he entered into this vow. Um, is he being hypocritical? Of course not. Is he saying one thing and doing another? Absolutely not. You know, Paul knew that he was free. Paul knew that better than anyone. He had been saved out of rule keeping. I talked about that last week. He wasn't saved from debauchery or wickedness. He was saved out of being a rule keeper. And this was what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law, as without, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That's really confusing. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And now this I do for the gospel's sake. So that was Paul. He knew what his freedoms were. He knew he didn't have to do anything uh, necessarily, but there were certain things he was willing to submit himself to out of love's sake for those who were around him, that he might be able to influence people for God so that he might be useful to God. And Paul was willing to set aside his freedom for the good of others. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So it was Paul's deal. He said, look, if this is a stumbling block to you guys, I'll do this. I'll take the vow because ultimately I want the gospel to be preached, God to be honored, and men to be saved, Jews and Gentiles. And he didn't allow little, little issues of conviction to stop that. So Paul knew what his convictions were. He was driven by them, even if it was going to cost his life. But Paul also knew when there were convictions that weren't, worth dying over they weren't a hill worth dying on as it as it was and so paul he navigated that really well and i think it's important for us let's just close with this if the worship team would come on up it's important for us that's why we believe in the, the studying the word as intensely as we do because this is where our convictions are developed and we need to understand what are the things that we are to stand for and even die for and what are the things that we can we can show grace and understanding towards and so i with that i would just say i want to encourage you guys be in your word seek the lord's face seek him in his word develop, develop good godly christ honoring convictions and also understand what are the things that you can have grace with others on amen all right father we love you and i am so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us as i have said i can't thank you enough for that i will always declare that and cry out god thank you i pray now that you would um, be honored as we close the service and worship as we lift your name on high as we sing of your goodness and your glory father receive our praise would you would you be enthroned upon the praises of your church in jesus name amen